0: But tonight, I just want to take you on a journey. So, you're just going to have to track with me. It's going to, the big aha, it'll all come together at the end. So, you might feel a little bit like, where are you going with all this? But at the end, it'll all come together. And so, and I want to start with giving you a little bit of a history lesson. So, I'm going to have to read it because I didn't memorize all these facts. Okay. (laughs) Um, Tonight, I want to speak to you about a man who was born in October. 27th, 1858, he was born a sickly child with debilitating asthma but chose to overcome his health problems by embracing a strenuous lifestyle. He was homeschooled, which I really love that. (laughs) Um, He was an advocate for natural environments, went to Harvard College at the age of 24. He proved himself to be a true historian and popular writer by his book, The Naval War of 1812. He became the leader of the reform faction of Republicans in New York State Legislature. While entering into politics, his wife and his mother both died in rapid succession. So he escaped to a cattle ranch in Dakotas to heal his broken heart. He served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under William, President William McKinley, led the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War, returning a war hero. He was elected governor of New York in 1898. He was an American statesman, politician, conservationist, naturalist, and writer. As a leader of the Republican Party, he became a driving force for the progressive era in the United States in the early 20th century. His face is depicted on Mount Rushmore alongside George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. He is genera- generally ranked in as one of the best five presidents. He is known for the progressive movement, the square deal, domestic policies promising the average citizen fairness, breaking of trust, regulation of railroads, and pure food and drugs, conservation of many new national parks, forests, and monuments, foreign policies that focused on Central America and the Panama Canal, and he expanded the Navy with the Great White Fleet. His his successful efforts to broker the end of the Japanese war won him the 1906 Nobel Peace Prize. Does anybody know who this is? Yes, this was Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., the 26th president of the United States. Not only was he known for these physical accomplishments, but he was also known for being seen as one of the most Christian and religious of all presidents. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God, was his favorite verse. He participated in missions work with his father. He taught weekly Sunday school classes during his four years at Harvard. He wrote for Christian publications. He once wrote an article for the ladies' home journal, The Nine Reasons Why Men Should Go to Church. (laughs) I thought that was funny. And I find this really impressive. He spoke five 90-minute sessions, five of them, 90-minute long, at the Earl Lectures at Pacific Theological Seminary in 1911 from his heart, and not from notes, on the Christian's role in modern society. I mean, like, I, just knowing what it takes to get up here and barely, not even preach an hour, and, like, to know that you talked from your heart for 90 minutes on, this, on a subject, five of them, that's pretty impressive. Like, that's, um, he was not perfect, but he knew the one who is. He was fond of saying that he would speak softly and carry a big stick. It truly can be said that Theodore Roosevelt hid the word of God in his heart and acted boldly, truly an inspiring man to walk closely and bully with the Lord and accomplish so much. And I say all that, and I describe all that, because I want to talk about um, an excerpt from one of his speeches, and it really gives validity to what he said in this speech. It makes you know that he didn't have some speechwriter writing for him. This was truly him speaking from his heart and how he believed and lived his life. Um, So... called The Man in the Arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of the deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face (laughs) is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows in the end that triumph of high achievement and who at the worst if he fails, at least he fails daring greatly. And we can, I mean, we can look at his life and all his accomplishments and know that he he really did do that. He really put himself in the arena. He went after it, and he strived violently, and he went for the high achievement. But at least if he failed, he knew he did his best, and he gave it it all. Even if he failed, he did it. he failed daring greatly. Um. I want to focus on one particular piece of the speech, where it says, "The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, sweat, and blood." And like, I just find this excerpt very um, inspiring to me, very convicting. Very, uh, am I doing this? Am I this person? Am I living this way? I know that I have greatness inside of me. We all do. We all are full of the power of the Holy Spirit and who Jesus created us to be. We all have greatness inside of us, but do we live that way? Are we living that way? And so I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to picture this with me. And I want to talk about the arena. So the arena is massive. When I think of the arena, I think of Gladiator. I think of the Roman Colosseum. I think massive. Massive floor of the arena, massive arena in itself, and the amount of people that it can hold. The crowd is going wild. The noise level is deafening. You can't even hear yourself think on that arena floor. See yourself on that arena floor. You're smack dab in the middle of the arena floor. Your face is marred by dust, sweat, and blood and you're feeling that exhilaration, your adrenaline is going high. You're feeling really good about yourself and you're just excited for all the cheering, all everything that's going on around you. Wham, right before you know it, you're flat face down on the arena floor, not knowing what happened. What happens next? Does the crowd go silent? Maybe you have tunnel vision. And all you can hear is your parents screaming, get up, shake it off, you can do it. Or is the s- arena spinning from the shock that's setting in? This happens so much, so many times to us in our lives. Keep your eyes closed for a minute longer, and I want you to think about this next part I'm going to talk about. Um, we have face-down moments in our arenas of life. Is your face? D- have you had a face-down moment in getting fired? Finding out about an affair, personal information being stolen and all your money is gone, your breastfed gossiping about you and now everybody believes the lies, overlooked for promotion at work when you were one being groomed for it, um, you went to the doctor and someone you love found out they had a terminal diagnosis, finding out about your child lying about a report card, Disappointment at work, no money left at the end of the week so you cannot go and do what you wanted to do for the weekend. Tough parenting moments, a bad argument with a loved one, chipping and falling while working out at the gym. What do you do when you find yourself face down on the arena floor? You can open your eyes. (laughs) The arena is any place that we risk showing up and being seen. Let that sink in. Anywhere you risk showing up and being seen. It's all parts of it. It's not only parts of it. We can all show up, but do you risk being seen in that arena? If you're not being seen, then you're not fully in the arena, on the arena floor. Um, Arenas always create grandeur for us. It's risk being awkward at a new exercise class. It's, it's leading a team at work. It's leading a ministry at church. It's um, being in love always puts you in the arena, and being a parent always puts you in the arena. But you have to risk being showing up and being seen. It takes both, because we can be parents and we can not show care. up. It's easy. It's no, just because you have kids doesn't mean that you are in the arena. Uh, okay. Let me see. There are three levels of seating in the arena. We have the top level, which is the nosebleed section, the cheap seats. At, up in that top section, there's no risk. There's very little experiencing happening for you. It's just total fun. Like, you just, it's fun. There's no there's real no cost to you to being up there. The mezzanine, which is the second level, costs a little bit more, and a little more experience is happening, but you're still not all in. And even at club level, it's going to cost you, and your experience will feel like you're, you're right there with them on the field, but you're still not all in. The only way to be all in is to be on the arena floor. And again, this is you're all in, you're paying the high price because you are the spectacle for all to watch and to weigh in. This is where you risk showing up and being seen. Tonight, I want to look at what happens when we're face down and what's going on in those moments. How do we have courage and stagger to our feet and try again? What is the process of rising strong? And how do we slow down the falling process and rise strong with all the choices that come at us at once? especially in the midst of hurt and discomfort, and in all those moments, how do you take all that information, how do you get through it and actually get up off the arena floor without exiting to the seats? Because that's the easiest thing, is just, I exit. (coughs) But the sad thing is, when you exit, you can't unknow what you already know. You really just get stuck. You can't ever go back to, oh, I wish I could go back to yesterday. It was so glorious. You can't. You can't. I know what you already know. So it's a matter of what you're going to do to keep going forward and how you're going to learn and grow from what you do know and what has happened. So we are going to look at a face-down moment for Jesus in Mark fourteen twenty. Um, In 14... Mark 14, Jesus has just prophesied to his um, disciples, and he's told them to go into the city to find the room and what to look for for the Passover dinner. And so they've all had the Passover dinner. They're enjoying each other. They're having, and um, this moment comes. In 1420, in the Pass, this is the Passion Translation. He says, he answered, it is one of you 12 who has shared meals with me as an intimate friend. All that was prophesied of me, the Son of Man, is destined to soon take place, but it will be disastrous for the one who d- betrays the Son of Man. It would be far better off for him if he had never been born. That's rough. We all have had those moments where somebody has betrayed us or <coughs> disappointed at us or... And so here, Jesus, he has this person that he has poured his life out for. He has given himself to him for the betterment of that other person. And now he's just, he's, now he knows he's going to turn on him. And we know how that feels. So, one of the first things we have to do when we find ourselves face down on the arena floor is you have to begin to. Reckon with what's going on with you. Reckoning is um, the process of calculating where you're at. And I like what Brene Brown says: um, You can either walk into your story and own your truth, or you can live outside your story hustling for your worthiness. Intolerance for discomfort is why we linger on the outside of our stories. And discomfort is to disturb the comfort or happiness of something, to make uncomfortable or uneasy. And nobody likes that. I think we've really been lied to. Because, like, nowhere did Jesus ever promise us comfort and ease. But he did promise some pretty amazing things. But if you want comfort and ease, those great and amazing things are not going to come to you. He, I mean he paved the way for us to walk through discomfort because it's through our failures and it's through knowing, um, I'm trying how to put my thoughts together, the discomfort comes because you don't know what's coming in front of you and it's not being fearful of that, it's embracing that and walking through it. Everything's not comfortable and it's Okay. So reckoning all starts with your emotions, which is just an ugly word for a lot of people. Nobody likes to recognize what's going on in here. We're either mad, glad, or sad. We have got to create an emotional vocabulary for ourselves. (laughs) Um, Because you have to recognize part of reckoning, of calculating where you're at, is that um, you have to know where you've come from to know where you're going what's happening here to know how you're gonna set your, chart your course for the future. Otherwise, this is gonna become your driving force. Mm -hmm. This inside here, what's going on, and it could drive you in the wrong direction. It's not that our emotions give us validity to act in any way, but our emotions are indicators. They light up what's actually gives gives us the why, to what we're doing, to what we're thinking, to how we're behaving, but um, and it helps to show where the warning signs are. If you can figure out what you're feeling in here and reckon with it, then um, you can start to come to your aha moments. Engaging into the process, engaging in this process is how we walk into our stories which is what she's talking about. You have to engage with your emotions to walk into your story and own the truth. So many of us, we don't like to, cause we don't like to feel that ickiness, that ugliness that we know we're feeling inside. We wanna just shove it down. We wanna act like it's not there and we just wanna walk. But that's not owning your story. That's not owning who you are and what's going on with you. We would rather blame it on somebody else or the situation. Instead of going, no, I'm responsible for me, I have choices to make, regardless of anybody else. Yes, Yes, it may be truth that someone has hurt you, but you still have choices, and you still have responses to make and choices to own and how you're going to react to what they did to you. And you cannot do the blame game, and you cannot avoid discomfort, the discomfort of that, and linger on the outside of your story because otherwise she's, you're going to do what she said and you're going to hustle for your worthiness, <coughs> which means you're going to always try to prove to everybody or set them up for failure to make sure that they show it back to you in the way that you want it. And that's, that's, that's called hustling for your worthiness. If I do enough, I say enough in the right way, they'll get it. And they'll respond to me in the right way. And that's just not how it works. <laughs> and it, only when you start engaging in this process can you rewrite the ending to your story. If you start owning your story and you start walking into it and you start engaging with it, the beauty of God is that you can rewrite your ending. It doesn't have to be just so because, you, because it's at the whim of everybody else. It's not... It's within you to rewrite the ending to your story with God. And that's what you want. You don't want to leave yourself face down on the arena floor or yet parked in the seats, wishing and hoping and um, regretting, which is what will happen if you stay parked in the seats too long. And you'll eventually find yourself sitting in the cheap seats. (coughs) And we also disengage for, to self-protect ourselves. So if you're disengaging from your own story, you're, you're self-protecting, which then gives no room for God to be in it either. God can only be in it when you're engaged and you're fully in on the arena floor and you give him permission to help and be your help because you're all in and you're going after it. No matter how bad it hurts or how many times you fall down, how much blood and sweat and dust is on you, you get up and you, you go at it again until you... Learn what you're supposed to learn. You do what you're supposed to do. So I want to talk about the cheap seats for just a minute. Um, Way too many people that occupy the cheap seats have never ventured on the arena floor. Give that some thought. It costs them nothing to sit up there. It's the easiest spot to hurl judgments, opinions, insults, because they're so far away, it doesn't matter. They can act how they want and feel like, but it's no cost to them. And I look at social media having a real easy place for somebody to park in the cheap seats. That is one of the downfalls of social media is that you can hurl comments, judgments, whatever, run your mouth and be hateful and because no one's going to come find you. And that is so not what God has for any of us mm-hmm. at all. The only people, and I know this is going to sound a little harsh, but the only people that should be able to weigh in on your life are those that are in the arena, on the floor, fighting just as hard as you are. Yeah, if they're not giving it, and they're not experiencing it, and they're not picking, like, they just, they don't get to weigh in on your life. Right. So when I watch people, Put their life on Facebook or social media asking everybody to weigh in on it I'm just like oh my lord what are you doing like that's just dangerous to live that way because not everybody's you just don't know the accountability of those people that are weighing in and the validity of what they're saying it's the people that are close to you the ones that you've watched and you've seen and you see the accountability in their life and you see how the fruits are manifesting in their life that you know that they're able to weigh in on your life and be a help to you. And it would be like having a parenting expert. We would never call somebody a parenting expert that never raised a child. If we did, that would be foolishness. Or even worse, even if you're a parent and you have a child, if all you do is park them in front of the TV and throw them a bag of Cheetos and lock them in the house so you can go do what you want, that's not parent- being a parenting expert either. So that's what I mean when they have to be in the arena floor fighting just as hard as you are. Here's the steps for reckoning. You have to know where you've been. So that takes engaging with your feelings. You have to know what factors influenced you, influenced how you got to where you are now. And what I mean by that is getting curious about the story behind the feelings. It's going, well, I was real happy back here, and I talked to this person, and wow, I'm really messed up now. I'm feeling angry, irritated. And so that's what I mean by getting curious about the story behind the feelings. What emotions are we experiencing? How are they connected to our thoughts and our behaviors? Because whether we realize that we have filters, we have things we say to ourselves, the tape that plays in our head, if somebody triggers that, then that triggers our thoughts and our behaviors, and we start acting ridiculous. I mean, we really do. And you have to be able to go, why? You have to connect those thoughts and those feelings with your emotions and start that reckoning process of realizing, I was happy here and now I'm not. What, what has happened? And start connecting those dots. It's called the reckoning, realizing where you are at. And it's important. So in Proverbs 4.23, it says, keep vigi- vig- vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. So that's keeping vigilant watch of your heart by engaging with your feelings, recognizing where I was at and how I got to where I'm at now. And connecting the thoughts and the the behaviors to the feelings and getting curious about the events that happened that got you there. And also in Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Um, And it says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And so it just goes to show that we've got to question ourselves. We've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. As good as people as we know we can be, there's still stuff in there that we've got to deal with. We're just born into a sinful world and you've just got to be willing to ask yourself the hard questions and recognize why you're doing what you're doing. Because without reckoning, you can't chart a future course. And if you want to chart your future course, you've got to start figuring out why you're here, why you're at this moment. We're going to look at Jesus and the reckoning. And this is the Passion Translation again. It says in Mark 14, 32 to 36, Then Jesus led his disciples to an orchard called the oil press. He told them, sit here while I pray a while. He took Peter, James, and John with him. An intense feeling of horror plunged his soul into deep sorrow and agony. He said to them, My heart is overwhelmed with anguish and crushed with grief. It feels as though I'm dying. Stay here and keep watch with me. He watched a short distance away. And being overcome with grief, he threw himself face down on the floor. He prayed that if it were possible, he would not have to experience this hour of suffering. He prayed, Abba, my Father, all things are possible for you. Please don't allow me to drink this cup of suffering. Yet what I want is not important, for I only desire to fill your plan for me. Yeah. Yeah. You can see and you can hear in this the emotion that he was going through and he was recognizing the emotion that he was experiencing it and he was sharing it with the Father. But he kept on saying, but not what I want, what you want. But This is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on inside of me. So recognizing your feelings may look like this. I don't know what's happening, but I just want to hide. That might be an indicator that something's going on inside of here. That's normal. We just don't run and hide because it's normal. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if we were all just running and hiding all the time? <laughs> going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I just want to go to bed. <laughs> I just want to punch the wall. I think that talks about intense anger. Um, I want Oreos and lots of them. <laughs> With milk. With milk. <laughs> With milk. <laughs> I feel hurt, angry, disappointed, confused, etc. Someone ignored my attempt at connection, and now I feel rejected. My stomach is in knots. See how we have indicators that's pointing to that something? needs to be dealt with inside. Something needs to be looked at. I need to figure out why I'm here. Yep. This sounds pretty easy. It sounds easy in this moment. It's not always easy in those moments when they, our struggles come up. Because right. it is our own human nature. It, it, let's just face it. We weren't raised to recognize our feelings. Yep. I wasn't that is not the general population in the way that we were parented in the 80s, 90s, whatever, you know, like even today, people aren't raised to recognize, oh, really, what's going on? Why do you feel that way? Why are you making that statement? What just happened? You know, um, people don't always take time to help people walk that process when we're young. And, um, So what we tend to do is we allow our defense mechanisms to rise and to overtake us, or we just want to shove it uh, to the side and think, I'll deal with that later. But really what happens is, because all that is stirring inside of us, um, and instead we send up a flare by yelling at our spouse or our kids to let them know that, We're mad. We're upset. Something's going on. I mean, how many of us have encountered somebody and we we can go, oh, wow, they're having a bad day? (laughs) My husband has his hand raised very high. He knows. (laughs) Ah, Not that I've done that at all. (laughs) And when you do that, that's called offloading your emotions. We'd rather offload. Scare people away from us until we can get it back under control and move on and find our happy place again. We offload by sending nasty texts to people instead of giving it time to think it through or firing an email back at somebody. Um, We offload also by gotcha conversations in our head. How many of us has played scenarios in our head? we're getting vengeance, we're the one on top, we're the smart one, we put them down, we give them, you know, what they deserve. That is not dealing with your emotions. That is offloading, and that's not okay. So that should be an indicator to you as well. (laughs) Wow, I got to go deal with something. (laughs) Once we recognize what's going on inside of us, then we have to rumble with it. This is getting honest about the stories we are making up about our struggle. Challenging the confabulations and assumptions to determine what is truth, what is self-protection, what needs to change if you want to live a more wholehearted life. Confabulations, I know that's kind of a big word, not a word we use every day, but confabulations is a sociology term, social work term, sorry, not sociology, social work, It is the replacement of the gaps in a person's memory by a falsification that he or she believes to be true by conversing or discussing. So it's just human nature that we want to know the whole story. And our brains wants to fill in the gaps. And so that's why you've got to be able to rumble and get honest about the story that you're making up. Because we all do it. And there is so much emotion, so much sensory coming in in those moments of struggle when it hits you and you find yourself face down on the arena floor that you can't possibly take in everything. And so we fill in the gaps. And so that's why you always have to look at yourself and go, I could be wrong. What part did I play? That's getting honest with yourself did i do something to perpetuate this and bring it on that i was unknowingly doing yeah. what part do i need to own that's getting honest with yourself so it's it's when we hit our struggles it's also re, it's revisiting like i said and it's challenging yourself it's reality checking your situation. It's digging into the stories on topics such as boundaries, blame, resentment, heartbreak, generosity, and forgiveness. But the beauty of this, when you're able to rumble with your stories, and you're able to pick them apart like that, and you're able to recognize why you're feeling what you're feeling, is that um, you start to realize how you engage with people around you, and how you engage um, um uh, with who we are how do you how do you who you are and how you engage with others others when you start doing that there comes these moments you start realizing oh wow I do that and I didn't realize people received me in that way mm-hmm. I do this and people thought this instead but that's not really what I was trying to say and so it's having these key learnings that happen at if you can ask yourself and be honest with yourself and um, pick apart the story that you're making up in your head. It's all about becoming a better you. It's not about you being wrong or you being the bad person. It's about you becoming a better you that God created you to be and who he destined you to be. And that's where wholeheartedness lives and can be cultivated and change happens is when you can do that. That. Oops, I didn't. Okay. Let's look at Jesus and the rumbling he did. In Mark 14, 37 to 42, it says, Then he came back to his three disciples and found them all sound asleep. He awakened Peter and said to him, Simon, are you asleep? Do you lack the strength to stay awake for me for just one hour? Keep alert and pray that you'll be spared from this time of testing, for your spirit is e- eager. Enough, but your humanity is feeble. Then he left them a second time and went to pray the same thing. Afterwards, he came back to the disciples and found them asleep. For so they couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to them. And they didn't know what to say to them. After praying for the third time, he returned to his disciples and awoke them again, saying, Do you plan on sleeping and resting indefinitely? That's enough sleep. The end has come. And the hour has arrived for the Son of Man to be handed over to the authority of sinful men. Get up, let's go. Don't you see my betrayer draws near? So when he was going to pray to the Father, what do you think he was doing? Do you think, I mean, I just go, because he pointed out their humanity is feeble. I'm sure he was talking to the Father about the feeble humanity that these, his, Closest friends were encountering the hurt that he was encountering in his heart and the great, um, this choice of having to go to the cross that he was having to make for us and the anguish he was going through that it talked about in the scripture before. And I'm sure he was talking to the father about that. That's what that says to me. And just keep coming back and finding them asleep and then going back to the father and praying some more and talking to the Father about it. It doesn't say what he prayed. He said he just prayed it again. So, And it also, because Jesus was man and God at the same time, and it says that he experienced everything that we experience. So you know if we go through this and we have to question ourselves and we have to look at an honest look at ourselves, you know he was looking at an honest look at himself with the Father also because he was man just like us. And so you could be confident that he walked that process also. So, to do the rumbling process, though, you have to one, yes, you could go to the Father like Jesus did, you can go to God, you can share how you feel, you can work yourself through it. But I say that's good and fine for small issues, but when you have a huge issue, a huge letdown, your defense mechanisms get in the way and your thought processes get in the way. And you really do need somebody. You need two or three people that you can trust, that you know will think the best of you no matter what. I have them in my life. I call them often, not often, but, I mean, when I encounter a major letdown. And I have said more than once, I just need you to hear me. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm going to unload and share my feelings. But I know I'm not 100% right in this. I need you to help me think this through. And I've even said those words. The story I'm making up is this. You can use those words. The story I am making up. Mm -hmm. Help me to get honest about what's going on inside of me. Mm -hmm. And God likes to show up in people. God is in me. He's in all of you. He's in each one of us. And he is in the people business. And he wants to use people. And he does all the time on your behalf to show up for your behalf. He speaks through them. He uses them. And you've got to have people that you trust and you know that no matter what, they're going to love you through it and they're going to say the hard things to you. You don't want a yes and amen person all the time in your life. You need somebody that's going to say the hard things Mm -hmm. and you can trust them. Mm -hmm. Because the big picture is, if you're in deception, you don't know it. You need somebody who is going to say, I know you can't see it, but you need to go explore this area. Mm -hmm. It's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Questions to ask yourself while rumbling, rumbling, grumbling. <laughs> grumbling. <laughs> what more do I need to learn and understand about this situation? What do I need to know objectively? What assumptions am I making? We do make lots and lots of assumptions. What more do I need to learn and understand about the other people in this story? What additional information do I need? What questions or clarifications might help? What more do I need to learn and understand about myself? What's underneath my response? What am I really feeling? And what part did I play? These are all good, hard questions To ask yourself, to ask others when you're helping them, to help you to unlock the mess that is happening. To take that power away from our, our emotions that wants to drive us in the wrong direction is what you're doing. And it gets you to walk in love, which is what Jesus calls us to. Another way you can do it, too, is you can write it down. If you're a writer, write it down. And it's not that you're trying to write some beautiful story to somebody. You just write down how you're feeling. Then you're able to go back to it and look at it and ask these questions of yourself in those writings and start picking it apart and ask the Lord to reveal to you what's really going on. And another word that you have to embrace in this whole process is what's called vulnerability. People don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to put ourselves out there without knowing the actual outcome. If I put myself out there, what's going to happen? But it's the vehicle to the rising strong process and picking yourself up off the floor. You have to be willing to be vulnerable. And that process keeps you from screaming and yelling at somebody and having this back and forth um, kind of c- conversation. But you said, he said, you know, you, know, or you just fire back and forth to each other. If you're able to rumble and actually have an honest look at yourself, it keeps you from offloading emotions. It keeps you from yelling and screaming at people and actually having a conversation that is meaningful and can actually go somewhere and take you where you need to go. Um, our understanding, our fall and rise, owning our story, taking responsibility for our emotions, this is where the revolution starts. This was our last step, step, the revolution. The revolution is writing a new ending to our story based on the keys we learned from our rumble. It's using this new, braver story to change how we engage with the world to ultimately transform the way we live, love, parent, and lead. That's ultimately what we want. We want to be our best at loving people. We want to be our best at living life, at parenting, leading people, having relationships of any sorts. That's what we're after. How did Jesus do this? He chose the cross. He saw the bigger picture. He had the aha moment with the Father. He wrote a new ending to the story for us. He walked this process for us and gave us a new ending that is so wonderful. And if he can do and endure what he did and walk the process that he walked, we can walk our process and we can write a new ending to our story. Which, um, he chose courage and wholeheartedness over ease and comfort. And courage is nothing more than doing it afraid. Mm -hmm. Do it afraid. We're all full of, like, nothing bugs me and I'm just going to do this. I mean, most people who you consider courageous, they do it afraid. Mm -hmm. And they use that fear to fuel where they need to go and what they need to do. The fear isn't ruling them. They're ruling over it by going after it. And we all want to be courageous and live this wholehearted life to go after what God has called us to and destined us for and to be totally who God has called us to be. And love in the ways that he's called us to love, have connection, vulnerability, all that to have influence and advance his kingdom. That's what it's all about. Brene Brown in her book, The Gifts. Revolution might sound a little dramatic, but in this world, choosing authenticity and worthiness is an absolute act of resistance. Choosing to live in love with our whole hearts is an act of defiance. You're going to confuse, tick off, and terrify lots of people, including yourself. One minute, you're praying that the transformation stops, and the next minute, you're praying that it never ends. You also wonder how your skin feels so brave and so afraid at the same time. And at least that's how I feel most of the time. Brave, afraid, and very, very alive. (laughs) And there are a lot of truth in that. Mm -hmm. A lot of truth. Totally, that's how it feels. All right. I'm gonna try to explain this. I hope I get it all out. Um I'm just going to give an example of my life. So, this all started for me. I'm trying to think. um, I didn't write it down, and I had it earlier, and I should have wrote it down. Back this spring, late spring. And it was um, when we went on vacation, I start reading Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. And so I'm going to give this disclaimer because I didn't put it up there because it's a great book. She is a research social worker. And so she took 10 to 15 years of her life of research and vulnerability and found out all this stuff about connection, intimacy, and living a wholehearted life. That's just amazing stuff. She found God in the process, but I would, I mean, she knows God, but I would, I don't know how much he's involved in her life, so Rising Strong has some cuss words in it, (laughs) but what I did was, and she didn't do this, I was able to take the information and apply it biblically, and so that's why I never really put the book up there because it does have cuss words in it, I'm sorry. If that offends you, don't read it, but or overlook it, the fact. I have grace in my heart for her knowing that she's not where I'm at with the Lord, but at least she knows God, right. you know what I mean? Um, and so I start reading that book, and I started having aha moments with myself. And um, But I've had some rough moments in having those aha moments <laughs> in this rising strong process. And so I started realizing that um, I lost my risk-taking ability. I started questioning. Like, I started reflecting on who I was and where I'm at now. Because what happened, this is what it was. This is what happened. I started in the spring having these thoughts. I just want to live a normal life. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to live a normal life. Let's pack it up and let's just move anywhere but here. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. I just want to go live a normal life. Let's go to Colorado. Let's go to South Carolina. I don't care. I'm game for anything. I'm like, that is not me. Why do I feel this way? But I so feel this way. And um, and I realize now that was just the Lord stirring my heart to get me out of the seats of the arena. And when I was on vacation and after vacation, I started having another aha moment as I was reflecting on myself and I went I was such a risk taker what happened to me what happened to me and the Lord instantly spoke to me and he said you, tra- you traded it and you're risk-taking for the American dream and all these moments flashed between in front of my eyes I start feeling horrible about myself and so for me the American dream is was I'm going to have the most perfect house, my kids are going to be so perfect, we're always going to have lovely family dinners, everybody's going to come over and enjoy being with us, and we're just going to be this great and wonderful family who has it all together. But that's not always the case for anybody, you know what I mean? And um, and so then I started thinking about my prophetic words, and this is when and I had to go to Eric and talk to him about him and some of the things that had hurt my heart over the years and you know I'm crying and I'm having this epiphany and one thing that Tom said to me also this I went that got me stirring too he goes you have aha moments but you don't do anything with them and I went oh my gosh you're right I do I have aha moments but I don't do anything with them why am I this way and I realized that I wouldn't get myself out of the seats of the arena I wouldn't put myself back there I would know what I'm doing wrong, and I would feel bad about it, and I would calm it back down, and I would have where I had changed, where I might step on the arena floor, but then I get back off of it after I have my triumph moment, but I wouldn't stay there. I just wouldn't stay there, and so this is happening to me, you know, about July, and I'm crying to Eric, and one of the things was God has called me to preach, and In some ways I felt shut down and so I'm sharing those moments with him and he just goes, you're going to preach first Sunday in September and I went, that's not what I was asking for. (laughs) I am not ready. I'm a mess. I didn't even know what I would preach on. We're starting the school year. This is the craziest time to ever do anything like this. I'm not ready. And then Shelly asked me to go to Russia (laughs) and again I'm faced with You are a risk taker. What are you going to do? And I I said yes afraid after I got the okay from Tom. You know, like if he said no, we're good, you know. (laughs) We're not going. But I said yes. And again, I'm all messed up inside. I am so messed up to all this stuff happening to me. And I'm not dealing with it. And um, my emotions, I know they're there. I feel them there but I'm trying to shove them to the side. I'm not taking time to deal with them. I'm not starting that record. I'm starting it, but not dealing with it, not really. So what happens is um, the stress of the school year starts and um, finding our rhythm, and Tom and I just have a bad three weeks. And I am offloading in the worst moments ever, not meaning to, but the stress is overriding my ability to hold my emotions together, and I'm not reckoning. Uh, and, I, and I rumbled a few times, you know, with a few small things, but not really rumbling with the big issue of not being a risk taker anymore. Why am I so afraid to do it? Why won't I stay on an arena floor, you know? And then, then Tom says some really tough things to me that needed to be said. It needed to happen but it just set me over the edge again. <laughs> and so this week, like come Wednesday, I'm finally dealing with it. I'm finally reckoning, and I'm finally realizing what brought me here fully, where I'm at, and where I'm wanting to go. And I just have the biggest meltdown Wednesday with Shelly on the phone. She's one of my people, sorry. Um, I'm in Kroger's parking lot, and I'm just bawling my <laughs> eyes out. I'm like, I cannot go home, I will lose it on everyone. And I have to reckon, I have to rumble with what's going on inside of me, so please tell me. And you know, I'm so bad, I'm a blubbering mess, I cannot stop crying, and Shelly on the other end, she's going, quite frankly, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Never heard you like this before. I don't know what to say, this is demonic. I wasn't saying I wanted to kill myself, but just like literally just dissipate, and nobody ever knew I was here, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> they could all go in life as normal, I don't have to feel this anymore, and I can, I'll be just totally fine with that, it's okay, and, um, but it, it brought me. It brought me to the moment, you know, she said some hard things to me. She said some good things to me. She helped me to rethink what I was thinking, and she got me back on track. And, um, and she encouraged me. She goes, this is not who you are. This is not the Michelle that I know. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it got me back on track to the point that I had to go home. I started repenting to Tom. About things that I was forever sorry about. Was I totally wrong in everything I did and he was totally right? No, but I sure did make some really wrong moves too. I'm forever sorry that I hurt my husband's heart. I'm forever sorry that I've hurt my children's heart and if I've hurt your hearts in my process of getting back on the arena floor and it's not easy and it's not fun and I did want to quit but I'm not now, and that's why I said yes to preaching. That's why I said yes to going to Russia. And I did not even know what I was saying yes to, people. I just said yes, and I <laughs> went, and, I, and after he bought the tickets, I went, Shelly, what am I even doing? Why am I going? What is happening? <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's like she says, you feel very brave and afraid all at the same time, but very alive, and that's what I want. I have been on this journey of finding connection, being vulnerable, finding intimacy, and living a wholehearted life. I was not made not to. I know that, that I know, that I know, that I need to take risks. Oh, here was another thing that happened to me that totally wrecked me too. And I know God was, again, trying to deal with some mindsets that I had and I start revealing how much of a poverty mindset I had embraced. But um, somebody offered me. They had a vehicle they were selling. It was a Mercedes. It was a 450 GL. They bought it in 2010, brand new. They drove it for three years, and it sat in their garage these past years. Since 2013, it sat in their garage. Brands make it new, load it with everything, seven seats, and only 55,000 miles on it, and they only wanted 13,000 for it. I went home and asked Tom about it, and he said, you come up with $10,000, and I don't care. And I was like, but the fear was so overwhelming on me, and I didn't process it with anybody. Like, it it just was so overwhelming, the fear, that I just had to say no. So I said no, and then somebody gifted us $10,000 the next week, (laughs) and I was like, okay, God, (laughs) so, you know, I have that weighing on me, too, because that happened at the first of August, so I have all that weighing on me, also, that I missed that test, that I failed it, and I went, that's so dumb, Michelle, it's $10,000, it's an affordable mistake, Mm -hmm. affordable mistake, you could have always sold the vehicle, you've learned in the process, but, you know, there was too many things that, the fear, it's all I can, the fear was getting the best of me and I realized in the process how much I was operating in fear in my life and not realizing it. And, uh, and calling it okay or hiding it. Think am I hiding it? But I'm not. And I know God'll bring the opportunity back around, you know. Again, it's Him helping me to learn and to rise to my failures and to get me where I need to be going hope that makes sense. There he goes. So, in all that I say tonight, this is what I want you to walk away with. Remember Roosevelt and how many times he put himself on the arena floor. And don't think that man didn't fail in the process of doing all that he did. But it did not keep him from staying there. To embrace your failures and to walk into your story. To reckon, to rumble, and revolutionize so you can live a wholehearted life. That's what I want. That's my heart for everybody here is that we all live a wholehearted life, giving it our best, and that we make room for failure and that we embrace the failing process. It's about failing forward. It's not taking your mess up and saying that I... And it's going... I failed and this feels horrible, I don't want you to jump to, I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. Two different things. You can fail and it can feel horrible, but you are not a failure. Right. Absolutely. To, but we want to jump to, I'm a failure, right. and that's not embracing the failing process. It's about failing forward, and the only way we're going to learn is if we fail. So why do we not, why are we not okay with failing? Why do we think it's the end of the world if we failed and that we're just somebody so stupid? How could I have failed? But really, if you want to innovate and you want to be creative and you want new things to come and you want to grow, you're going to fail. It's just part of it. We don't expect kindergartners to know their ABCs the first time through. They fail time and time again trying to learn those ABCs. Why are we okay with that? But we don't keep embracing that process as we get older. It's always you should have known better. Should have did better. Should have known better. And that's, that's not truth at all. That's not how God operates. That's not what he says to us in his word. Don't park yourself in any of the seats of the arena for very long. I know it's going to happen. But please, please do not stay there. <laughs> Get yourself back on and choose to live your life on the arena floor. The body of Christ needs you to choose courage as a lifestyle and choose to do it afraid. Can you put on some music? I'm just going to, we're just going to do a little time of prayer. I'm just going to allow the Holy Spirit to talk to you tonight. Just give permission to the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to convict your heart if he wants to, if he wants to show anything to you. I I want you to ask God if you had a face-down moment that you chose to go sit in the arena seats versus engaging in the process of picking yourself up and walking into your story. If it's a yes, then just repent. Tell him how sorry you are that you chose to get in the seats instead of staying on the arena floor. And then commit to partnering with him to finish the process of your arena experience. And I want you to ask him if you Are to engage someone else to help you in this process. That person who will help you to reckon, rumble, and find the revolution so you can live wholeness in your life. So that you can rewrite the ending to your story.